Emmett K. Takwaye now presents Shadow Song, Part 2, from the Winter Song Duet by S.J. Jones. everyone to M&K Talk YA, a podcast where we talk all about young adult fiction. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this week we finished reading Shadow Song, which is the second book in the duet by S.J. Jones. And boy, do we have a lot of questions. Yeah. Okay. Can I first just say, similar to the first book, I feel like once again, everything like switched at the halfway point. And I thought we were going to stay more in Vienna because we had just gotten there. But instead, we went off to where are we now? Snow, Snowvin? Snow, had a weird name. Yes. Castle something. Snowvin or something like that. The Count and the Countess's Castle. Yeah, so it felt like a completely different story again, which I liked. It was just like, oh my goodness, everything... like Everything changed again. I don't know. <laughs> just a lot of changes, yeah. Which made it hard to keep up with what was going on. I agree. And I and I liked that we had these um, interludes, let's use that word, where we, where we <laughs> hear about the legends that people were telling, about like the wolf demon that killed people and then there was this boy who had two different color eyes and they were you know gonna sacrifice him as an offering um and I I really liked that part but I didn't understand how it tied in to the rest of the story like who was the boy who was this wolf demon boy I think it was the goblin king or wolfgang as we now know his name to be. Okay, that's what I thought too. But then I was like, why is his name Wolfgang? Like, was it because of the wolf boy? And then I was like, is he really Mozart? Like- I know. Okay, <laughs> that part I wasn't sure about either. And I still was a little bit disappointed that we didn't hear like the end of the story where he actually became the Goblin King. Yeah, he even got though tricked. like all the clues were there, I I still wanted to like actually figure out like why did he agree to take on this role or get tricked? How did he get tricked into taking on this role? Um, yeah. Yeah, because in the first book, the Goblin King says that Brother Matthew taught him how to play violin. So that totally makes sense that like the wolf boy with two different color eyes is now the Goblin King. But there's still some missing pieces. Yeah. And like the Count was saying that the first Goblin King was this boy that they tricked somehow because like his wife, the Countess, she said is descendant from the first Goblin Queen. The one who escaped the brave maiden. Right, and then we learned that the Brave Maiden actually came back to, like, steal the Goblin King, and, like, she kind of, like, lured him out of his kingdom and left someone in his place, and they said it was, like, a boy who was, who, like, didn't last long. And then I was like, ooh, I wonder who that was. I wonder if it was the Count's brother. Remember when the Count talked about his brother, um, Ludwig? Yeah, I feel like it had to be more and more generations, though, because his brother couldn't have been... Like oh, I feel like true. I feel like it's been generations of this kind of thing. And I think it was sort of like what Liesel ended up doing with Joseph, except that instead of the new Goblin King like volunteering and taking on that responsibility, basically the original Goblin Queen said, I'm taking this guy. You can stay here, dude. Yeah. So it was, there wasn't like the <laughs> same deception the first time around. Yep. 
man, okay. That makes more sense now. <laughs> but I still, I still am like kind of confused. Like I'm still confused by what the Count and Countess were trying to do, what they were actually trying to do versus what happened. I agree because the Countess said that she had a daughter, Adelaide, right? Mm-hmm. Who died. And then we learned that she sacrificed her perhaps because the count and countess are sacrificing the blood of the faithful to kind of like seal the boundary between the worlds. Yeah. And then I was confused because they were also the faithful were saying, I mean, like, was she their daughter? Like, what was their relationship beforehand? Were they trying, was she able to connect to the goblin? Like, because part of the story made sense that if she's the end of this line, that they'd want to like continue the line somehow. So I sort of like, bought into that a little bit but then I was confused if it wasn't really their daughter if she really had any ability or if she was purely just a sacrifice or if the boy was a sacrifice and the daughter was supposed to do something else and then that like failed or something yeah and I mean I guess like they said at the beginning that there was a young woman who the count and countess took under their wing who disappeared so I mean at least we learned that that is Adelaide but yeah at the same Mm -hmm. time it's like was she just a sacrifice, or was there more to that relationship? And, and like, I get that they she wants Liza to be her heir because she feared the end of the line, but... Well, that's why I was confused. Did she actually want her to be the heir, or was that just, like, a story to keep her there? A believable story? Oh, maybe, and they were gonna sacrifice her. I like, know. was she... <laughs> Because I did, then I, I didn't know why they were keeping Joseph. Then I felt like Joseph was supposed to be a sacrifice. Or why keep him if... Or was she hoping that, I don't, I don't know, I just was getting confused. I agree. And we never really see the Count and Countess at the end of the book. Like, it never ties back to them to explain, like, what are they doing now? Yeah, and I was really interested in their relationship, too, especially when you learn kind of how, it, oh, yeah. it seemed like they actually liked each other, you know, at the beginning. Like, there was a real, like, marital relationship, but... Mm-hmm. Then some of the other stuff we heard and some of the, like, way the Count was kind of scared or, like, revealing information that he wasn't supposed to. Like, there definitely was, it was more complicated than that. So I, I was kind of curious to hear more about them. I know. I'm sad we didn't. I know. Okay, I- so I'm going to put that on the beginning of my list of short stories I want <laughs> to know more of. And it would be the Count and the Countess, like, much younger. Yeah. And in Adelaide's story. Yeah. Oh, that would be good, too. Yeah. Oh, that would be, like, even just that name. I'm like, yes, I want to read that Adelaide story. (laughs) Um, And then I also am curious about, and now I can't remember her name, the lady, the housekeeper. Oh, Nina. Nina, yeah. What she knew and what she, I actually, I remember Nina, but I thought that that was one of those times where I made up a much simpler name for something. (laughs) Um, But I guess that was just a simpler name. Um, But... I'm kind of curious, like, what all she knew, because she seemed to, like, always be there for certain... I don't know. You know, I just, like, I felt like there was more to her story, too, and I was curious about that. And it seems kind of like she was an ally to, to Lysol. Yeah. So, again, I didn't know, like, how much of the truth she knew versus she just, like, was a compassionate person versus, you know. Mm-hmm. Also, um, I just... I don't know. I want, like, almost like a sequel. Like, I want to know what happens afterwards, because we just kind of leave... And Joseph's the new Goblin King. Yeah, and it sounds like because she plays her music once a year, it, like, keeps him from being a complete monster, and that's, like, all the love he needs, I guess? I guess, but was that's sort of the so implication. Sad. And, like... And then he was in love. Yeah, what happens to Francois? 
Yeah, I agree. And I'm even curious to see what the austere young man is like without the monster part. And if they, like, I don't know. I just feel like, isn't he a different person than when he was half goblin or whatever? I would think so. I mean, we don't really get to see Wolfgang at all just by himself. Yeah. Yeah. And does Liesl, does she get her sanity back? Or is she, like, now just a crazy person? (laughs) But it's okay because... Some of the hallucination scenes were really cool, I have to say. Like, I love um, when she's, like, looking into that lake and it has that mirror surface. And it's Mm -hmm. even at the end when she's, like, she kind of, like, hallucinates that she's turning inside out. Like, she can see through her skin into her organs and then, like, Joseph's bleeding these shadows from his eyes. Like, I really liked the idea of, like, an inverted world and how, like, the lake was a mirror um, and was, like, a portal to another world. I thought that was... The imagery was was really great. But yes, it was yeah. a little confusing. <laughs> no, I agree. No, and I even, I like almost liked the confusion. Like I didn't really, s- I got like to this point, especially in the second half, where I was like reading really fast instead of like, I think, taking the time to be like, mm-hmm. wait, what just happened? And like rereading or something because I was like in the story and I kind of felt like that was how it was supposed to be. And it, I think also because it kept shifting, you know, we kept going like back to the legend and then like seeing either Joseph or Katie or someone else's perspective and then back to Liesl. And it was, like, kind of hard to keep track of everything. But I felt like that was kind of part yeah. of the point. Yeah, it's, it's almost like your madness as a reader is kind of, like, meant to reflect the insanity of Liesl and just, like, the craziness that she's trying to wrap her mind around. I kind of felt like that we had the same journey. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you were more able to relate to it because of all of that. You know what other um, short story I want? What? I really liked the story of the wheelwright and um, how... How he carved like, all those things yeah, and was like kind of childlike and, like, and then, yeah. And he lost his wife and baby to the fever and then like he starts telling these stories about goblins and elves and then like how crazy is this? The villagers just decide that it would be kinder to end his life. And so they go to his house to kill him, and they find him gone, and then there's just, like, the carving left, and it has the face of the wheelwright on it. I was like, ooh, like, that little story I loved, and I was like, ooh, that could be fleshed out into, like, a really great short story. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, like, um, did you read the the Grishaverse Legends? Yeah, the Language of Thorns. Yeah, it reminds me of... I think it was one of those where there was like a toy or a toy maker. Oh, the um, the Nutcracker. Yeah, it was kind of like the Velveteen Rabbit-ish, you know, but like a new version of it. Well, it was like a retelling of the of the Nutcracker story. Or the Nutcracker, yeah. Because he was, um, yeah, it was like they carved this Nutcracker and there was a girl named Clara and I loved that story. Yeah, that was really good. It kind of reminded me of that though. I was like, ooh. And who was the wheelwright? Like, how does he tie back into the story? Was it just a legend that she decided to include? I mean, so in his place was the wolf boy. That's where the wolf boy came from. Oh. Like, when they came, when they came so to... So the ca- wheelwright turned into the wolf boy? I don't know. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't... Or, you know, he liked children or he, like, related to children. Maybe he found the wolf boy or maybe... I don't know. But that was, like, his introduction. Yeah, and I would actually... I'd like to know more about the wolf boy in general or brother... Matthew or whatever his name was because he was like the only one who stood up for him yeah and I was 
little bit unsure. I felt like there was more to his story, too, about why he kind of went against the whole town to help this boy. Yeah, especially since, like, he's trying to teach him to fit in, and he, but the child won't talk, and he won't respond to his name, and he just speaks in this, like, odd babbling language. But then, like, the two times he does talk, he talks very clearly and, very, like, kind of, com- like, it's not simple. Right, right, right. It's like he, he definitely has comprehension and he's intelligent. It's just it's just different from what the norm is, which is kind of like the theme of this whole book. Well, and I even liked how they were like he didn't talk and everyone was fine with it. And then they started to realize that he was like picking up on all their secrets. And even though he wasn't going to tell their secrets because he wasn't talking, that's like when the village kind of turned on yeah. him. And it, I think it also goes back to, you know, these other ideas of, what are people ashamed of and what's normal and what's, you know, kind of that, that sort of stuff. Yeah, and how, like, your differences can make you, can, can make you a scapegoat sometimes for when things go mm-hmm. wrong. Because it seemed like every time something happens, <clears throat> the villagers kept looking for um, a sacrifice. Someone yeah, someone to offer up to the Goblin King to kind of appease him. And they always turned to people who were just a little bit different from the norm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I love that whole theme of madness and creativity and genius and the fine line between all of them and how you know just because you do something that's maybe a little bit different it's like are you abnormal or are you gifted and it's just two kind of different perspectives and even even thinking about it as like a gift from the underworld is kind of an interesting thing to think about too and how to your point how they're tied together and we think of them as negative but in the book the it wasn't like a bad place necessarily it wasn't a fun place but like there was a lot of beauty there and like yeah it's funny too because like whenever I mean I have a couple friends who are like really talented singers and they're crazy (laughs) (laughs) no they're they're quite normal but they um (laughs) I just remember like growing up whenever we hear them sing like people would say you have a gift from God like oh this is like a God-given talent and it's so Mm -hmm. true but at the same time it also underestimates how much discipline goes into training that talent. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's not just given to you, you have to work for it. Right. Like like you may have a better instrument than some other people, which is given from God, but it doesn't just play itself kind of thing. Exactly. And so I always kind of felt a little bit bad when people said that cuz I was like they work so hard to get where they are and it's not just like it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think we talked about that briefly, uh, maybe in the last book when we were talking about how didn't some musician like burn his wife burned all of the oh yeah Mozart's okay, wife burned all of his rough drafts yeah and just thinking about how like it's easy when you look at the end product to just say oh well I could never do that they're special and they are but usually right. they're special because they work really hard and they put in the effort and you know maybe if Mm-hmm. you or I did the same thing we could produce something really cool too yeah because I mean I think people just tend to like romanticize the idea of this artistic inspiration yeah or the idea just comes to them fully formed, or the music is complete you know in their head right exactly how it sounds at the end of the day yeah so I researched this week I was really interested in the fine line between creativity genius and madness okay and so I researched that a little bit and so this is kind of crazy. So this title, this is from EliteDaily.com. Okay. And the title of this article is The Genius Insanity Gene, Why the Smartest People Are a Little Bit Crazy. <laughs> and um, so essentially they were talking about like all these p- 
people who we consider to be geniuses like Albert Einstein or um, people who are highly creative like, I don't know, Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo or Vincent van Gogh, um, mm-hmm. you know, people who we associate with creativity, a lot of them also suffered from mental illness. And uh-huh. so this article was just talking about how there is really a link between creative genius and madness and especially between people who have schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. I guess those disorders are really prevalent among highly creative and intelligent people. So there was a study that was conducted, and what they did was they um, researched, or they studied uh, Swedish teenagers, and they were all about 16 years of age, and they were considered academically gifted. So they did okay. some, you know, intelligence tests and they were marked as having a higher intelligence or, or you know, higher performing than other students. And mm-hmm. they found that, okay, so there were 700,000 Swedish 16-year-olds who were studied and they said that um, the people who excelled when they were 16 years old were four times as likely to go on to develop bipolar disorder. Wow. Yeah. So do they think there's like a common cause or something linked? Yeah. Like like those aren't cause and effect of each no. other, are they? Is there something else that's causing both or Well they were saying there's a gene. There's a specific gene. And and this study was conducted by people who have um, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia disorder. So it was people who suffer from these mental illnesses who wanted to study um, the link between creativity, genius, and madness. It's just to you know, awesome. put a perspective on it. Um, one of them was uh, Kay Redfield Jameson, and she was from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And okay. so they said that there's a specific gene, and it's called DARPP-32, which allegedly connects genius and madness. And it's a gene that enhances the ability to think. And they said it's found in about three quarters of people. So three quarters of people, that's like a lot of people. Yeah, I know. But it said that the variant was also associated with an increased risk of schizophrenia. So I don't know. It was just kind of like... That there is a relation. Yeah. And we have this this kind of idea of a tortured genius, and it's kind of, it, it seems to be backed up by at least some kind of science. And I think even taking mental illness out of it, again, just this idea of madness really being different from the norm. Like Mm -hmm. anyone who's especially creative or an especially forward thinker, in a lot of ways, even if they don't have any diagnosed mental illness of any kind, would be thought, you know, like that could be unaccepted by the norm and therefore make them seem crazy, you know, mad. Yeah, for sure. And she said that... um... Well, there was another professor, Elin Sachs, from the University of South Carolina, and she has uh, schizophrenia. And they said that a lot of people who have this creative energy, um, you know, they don't consider their moments of brilliance to be worth the extensive suffering. So um, she was just like, I think creativity is just a part of something that is mostly bad. So that was just her kind of perspective. I love that the people who are doing this research are also affected by it, though. I think that's, like, actually really, really cool. Yeah, I I thought so, too. And and she was also saying that, like, people with these kind of issues don't filter stimuli as well as other people. So they're able to entertain a lot of contradictory ideas at the same time. 
And so, hmm. like, in one study, they asked people to list all the words that come to mind in relation to a specific word. So they would give them a word and they say, think of as many words that come to mind. And they said um, that bipolar patients generated up to three times as many word associations. Wow. And they, they tied that into strokes of genius by saying that, like, this sheer amount of unsuppressed ideas that come to mind leads to a, a greater probability mm-hmm. of producing something extraordinary. That's cool. Yeah. So then I also looked up um, weird habits of highly intelligent people <laughs> or, like, geniuses because, like... You always hear of, um, you know, like Albert Einstein never wore socks and stuff like that. Like strange mm-hmm. things that we would consider a little bit odd or strange. Although I, I sometimes wonder if it's any more common in geniuses than anyone else. It's just that we're so interested in how geniuses work or think or do things. Oh, that that's we... a good point. <laughs> but I'm just so, like I still want to hear. <laughs> um, okay, so I... I just looked up a couple... Well, actually, this was an article that was... It was by Indie 100, and it was 11 geniuses with extremely unusual habits. <laughs> and so they, of course, they started with Albert Einstein, who didn't wear socks. But I guess he also didn't speak until the age of four. I've actually heard that before. And didn't he start speaking in, like, full sentences, though, or something? Oh, I didn't hear that, but that's probably very possible. But there's like a syndrome, it's called Einstein syndrome, and they use it, um, it's a term that describes really, really intelligent people who have had significant speech development issues as a child. So, and I might be making up the sentence thing, but I didn't read very early. Like my parent, like I wouldn't sound out words Mm -hmm. when I was supposed to be doing that at Mm. school. And then like one day I just started reading, I mean, not like perfectly, but... Like, I kind of, I think I just was, like, taking in a lot of stuff and just reading, not speaking. And I think okay. it's kind of about my introvertedness, but I just remember being, my parents were like, why isn't she talking? Yeah, at first we thought you weren't getting it, and then all of a sudden you were, like, normal development stage, <laughs> even though you hadn't started there. Oh, so you probably had Einstein syndrome. I'm, pro- I'm pretty much a genius. Well, they did find that his brain, or the part of his brain that's responsible for mathematical thought was 15% larger than the average person's, which I thought was really wow. cool. But then on the other hand, there was also reports that he repeatedly ate live insects just off the ground. I was going to say, was his, if his brain in general was the same size, but the mathematical portion was 15% larger, what did he give up? <laughs> what was he eating yeah. up? Yeah. yeah, there are like all these reports that he like once ate a live grasshopper. <laughs> Although, again, once, I, I mean, I would do a lot of things once. So if someone, <laughs> like, if one day I became famous for whatever reason and they were like, well, this one time, da 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 da, like, that isn't, that's true. That isn't, um, so I guess Leonardo da Vinci did not adhere to the belief that eight hours of sleep is good for you. So he would, he did what is called the polyphasic cycle of sleep, where he would just take small naps every 24 hours and it allowed him to work more. And Nikola Tesla did the same thing. He only slept two hours a day, and he worked from 3 a.m. to 11 p.m. I used to do a lot of reading about people who had weird sleep patterns or abnormal sleep patterns and how they would try to maximize their productivity. Yeah. It's hard to have an abnormal sleeping pattern, even if you're sleeping eight hours and you have like a nocturnal schedule or something, It uh, because of light and because of how the rest of the world and, you know, people you're interacting with and businesses even and all of that. And like, it's really hard to maintain an abnormal sleeping cycle. 
long term. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Nikola Tesla also said that he would curl his toes 100 times per foot before going to bed in the evening because it belie- he <laughs> believed it boosted his brain cells. And Igor Stravinsky, the composer, used to stand on his head for 15 minutes every morning because it, he said that it would clear his head. <laughs> I know, for 15 minutes? Are you kidding me? He probably, like, passed out from blood flow to his brain. Um, I love this. So Edgar Allan Poe is, is very often associated with, you know, madness and genius. And he um, actually had this quote that was really interesting. He said, men have called me mad, but the question is not yet settled whether madness is or is not the loftiest intelligence. Oh, he also, so Edgar Allan Poe used to write on scrolls instead of paper, (laughs) which used to like drive his editors completely mad. He would just take little pieces of paper and seal them together with wax and just make them into one long scroll. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's great. But this is kind of crazy. So you know that really famous portrait of Edgar Allan Poe? Mm -hmm. The one that like they show every time they mention him? I was going to say the only one I can think of, I'm guessing. Yep. Yep. This is so sad. So he posed for that portrait four days after trying to commit suicide by laudanum. Wow. Yeah. I read that and I was just like, oh my God, that's so sad. Um, Okay, this is funny. So I researched Mozart a little bit because I was like, he's definitely got some strange habits. Um, (laughs) So he was obsessed with poop jokes. Like obsessed. (laughs) Like anything about poop or farting he thought was absolutely hysterical. Uh, I totally should have looked up a poop joke for the day. (laughs) That would have been great. I should have given you some fair warning. (laughs) Um, So I guess also, this is less well known, but I guess he likes to imitate cats. So he would be like rehearsing an opera with singers and then he would grow bored and he would just start leaping over tables and chairs and meowing. (laughs) And then he like even wrote a song called The Cat Duet about... Um, a woman who just responds to her husband's questions with nothing but meows until her (laughs) husband just completely breaks down and starts meowing with her. (laughs) And he also... That's hilarious. He's he's just, like, such a funny guy. He also um, created nicknames for his friends, just, like, crazy, strange nicknames. And some of the nicknames were Duchess Smackbottom. (laughs) Like he would call them this to their face? (laughs) Yeah. Count- <laughs> Countess Makewater, Princess Dunghill, and Prince Potbelly. Wait. <laughs> oh my god, this is too good. Prince Potbelly Von Pigtail. I don't know if I'd want to be his friend. <laughs> I know. And so a lot of people think that he probably suffered from ADHD and or Tourette syndrome. Um, but the other thing was, this is crazy. So there's a story that he wrote. So he wrote Don Giovanni, the opera. And there's a rumor that he did not complete the overture to the opera, like the first piece that is played for the opera. He didn't finish it until the night before its debut. Oh my goodness. And, and he was like out with his friends and they were like, hey, did you write that uh, overture yet? And he was like, no, it's all up in my head. So he like went home reportedly at like 3 a.m. and was just completely drunk and or hungover and his wife had to like feed him like bits of sustenance so he could compose this overture and then he finished it like the morning of and the, the musicians had to sight read it because oh, like didn't get a chance to practice it i was gonna say that's impressive that he could pull that off at the last minute but it's also pretty impressive that those musicians could pull it off at the yeah, last minute i know i mean i don't think he gave them much choice <laughs> but they pulled it off i guess mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's funny yeah so i don't know that was just like 
some interesting habits of highly creative people. And then I was trying to think, like, do I have any weird habits? Well, again, I'm just wondering, like, I feel like I do weird stuff, but, like, if I do something really cool with my life, people will be like, oh, yeah, that was her, like, weird genius habit. And if I don't, people will just be like, oh, yeah, she was kind of (laughs) weird. Yeah, and I mean, it's all relative, too, right? It's like, what's weird to you is not weird to someone else, or and vice versa. Yeah. I guess the weirdest thing that I do is, like, Chad always makes fun of me for this, but I will sometimes shower before I work out, which doesn't make any sense. I always cross my legs twice. Like under, oh, like you'll cross them one way and then cross them the other yeah, way? Yeah, like I'll cross my left over my right and then my right foot will go like behind. Or my oh, left I do foot will too. go back. But like I always do that. Or Like you're pretzeled almost. When I'm bored, I type the lyrics to uh, Absolutely by Nine Days like without a keyboard. <laughs> like if I'm just bored sitting at the oh desk, that's what I do. I start <laughs> typing the lyrics to that. That's really funny. <laughs> I don't know why. Like, I, that's not even... I mean, I like the song, but it's not, like, my favorite song ever. You know, like, I don't know why it that song... always comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think you're weird for doing that. I buy all my books. <laughs> I mean, that's weird for sure. Um, okay, so then I'm, I'm pretty much done, but Arist- I like this quote, too. So Aristotle said that no great mind has ever existed without a touch of madness. I agree. I mean, I, I buy into that. I, and I like the quotes and I like the examples and I even like that there's some science behind it. Yeah, I know. I was, I was like, got super into researching this, actually. I spent a long time looking at just articles about artists and I don't know. I mean, some of them was so sad, you know, like Vincent van Gogh was a hugely creative, important artist and he had manic depression, you know, for a huge portion of his life. And you know, he's so famous for cutting off his ear and, you know, giving it to that that prostitute at the hotel. But it's like, it's so sad that he suffered from that the entire time that he was generating these amazing works yeah. of art. And they said that, like, he, he just had breakdown after breakdown. And, and there was a time when he was, he left a psychiatric institution. And during that time, it was like the most productive period of his career. And he, he made 75 paintings and more than 100 drawings in 70 days. Yeah, it goes back to that sort of like, be careful what you wish for idea that we hear a lot too in our books. Like, would you want to, yeah. you know, be able to be that creative if it meant... Well, and Lisa had to make that choice a little bit. I mean, it wasn't about creativity specifically, but she had to give up her sanity in order to save her brother. And yeah. Like, Oh my gosh. You know, that's kind of an interesting, like, what choice would you make? Because she was originally forced to give up his her love for her brother, and she was yeah, like, I she can't refused. do that. She yeah. refused. Yeah, that's the other question I have in this book, is like, so she's without her sanity now, and... Yeah, that's what I was like, is she still <laughs> without her sanity, or was it just temporary, or... Because she did get her music back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but she also describes it as, um, she says something like, madness is an escape from boundaries, inhibition, and self-doubt. And she describes sanity as being a prison. So I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if there's a connection here between, like, she's losing her sanity makes her free. Mm -hmm. That they're trying to get at. Yeah, it didn't seem like an all bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. But again, if this is some great love story between a half monster and a mostly sane person and then at the end of the day he gives up his monster part and she gives up her sanity 
is this relationship really going to work in the real world? What are your thoughts? <laughs> it's, it's like watching The Bachelor. You're like, oh, God, is it really going to last beyond this episode? I know. I want to I do an after the rose ceremony with uh, <laughs> Or after the poppies. <laughs> so what I looked up, because I was also loving these legends, maybe because they talked about wolves, but I looked up kids who've been raised by animals. That's awesome. Yeah. And it actually was like more depressing than I thought because in my oh. mind, I think I thought it would be more like, oh, how The cool. Jungle Book story. Yeah, to be yeah. like, welcome by this group of animals. But there were some also just like, in general, pretty interesting stories. I guess if I think about it, like, not in terms of YA fantasy, the idea of a child being abandoned and being forced to be raised by animals, yes, that is absolutely horrific. Yeah, and I mean, it is really common in a lot of cases where if you've been like a feral child, which also a lot of feral kids are actually raised by humans, but like locked up and not given oh, no. proper human contact or whatever. Um, speech is like a really hard thing to develop. So I thought that oh, was kind of, you know, interesting when you're thinking about this wolf kid and whatnot. But some of them were still just kind of really interesting stories and they weren't all completely verified. So I got this list from zmescience.com. But a lot of these stories I found on multiple sites, and this was just kind of a good place to read them. But like I said, some of the stories, even the ones that they're like based a lot on what the child is saying happened, and it's hard to know how much of that was true versus, you know, child fantasy versus just complete fabric. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but um, there's this, this, this one I thought was really interesting. There's this kid from 1945 named Sidi Muhammad. Mm-hmm. And he lived in North Africa and ran away at age five or six and found an ostrich nest. What? And, like, the chicks were hatching or whatever, and he, like, didn't want to go home and decided to stay with the ostriches. So he supposedly lived with them for, like, five to seven years, somewhere in that range. Um, I can't imagine ostriches being very maternal. I know. So I guess they taught him how to run really fast, and they would protect him with their wings, like, at night. But compared to, like, some of these are, like wild dogs or monkeys or stuff that I feel like we already have more of a connection with yeah. <laughs> as humans. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, he eventually was found by ostrich hunters who returned him to his parents and he like grew up, got married, had children, like lived a normal life Okay. relatively after that. But he was eating mostly grass the whole oh time he was living with the ostriches. He lived with them for seven years? Different reports I read said five years but this particular article said seven years yep um so this is one of the more interesting ones that i read like a ton of other things about too so marina chapman have you heard about her at all Mm -mm. she wrote a book called the girl with no name the incredible story of a child raised by monkeys oh wow and i read like this interview with her too on a different article but um she currently lives in bradford england and Again, now she's married, she has kids, like you'd probably think she lived a normal life, but like all this crazy stuff happened to her. So when she was four years old, she was kidnapped. They think likely she was kidnapped for a ransom, but they don't know the whole story and she doesn't remember anything before no. age four. Before she remembers um, a handkerchief covering her mouth. Or, you know, like she remembers the actual kidnapping, okay. but nothing beforehand. Oh my God. Um, and then she was abandoned in the Colombian jungle. Oh my goodness. And I guess she, like, spent a few days, like, wandering around, trying to find her way home, waiting for someone to come and find her, and that didn't happen. And eventually she came across this group of 
capuchin monkeys. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where it's like a little bit mixed. Uh, some of the accounts about it. Some say that they like welcomed her into the group. Others say she probably just more like scavenged near them them. and they didn't attack her you know like she learned from watching them not that they were like especially uh familiar but she even like there were stories i was reading stuff with her kids about how she would like groom them as kids like you know through their hair and um how she like loves to climb trees and she like knows all these monkey sounds oh my goodness But her story gets almost crazier. So she was rescued by hunters after five years. Five years living by herself in the jungle? Yeah. That's incredible that she survived. She said she she had seen other hunters before, and she was, like, fascinated by them because, like, I think she recognized that they were human, but she was also scared of them because they had guns and machetes and stuff. So these were, like, the first hunters that she revealed herself to. Um, And they found her, and they sold her to a brothel. Oh, no. And she had no human language capabilities. Oh my so God. then she ran away from the brothel and was living on the streets and eventually became slave of a mafia family. Oh my God, this poor girl. But eventually she made it to Bradford, England and became a nanny and met her husband. And her husband was even like, I, like she revealed parts of the story so slowly. Like yeah. she never like told us the story start to finish. Like at first I thought she just lived in a village that had monkeys around. I didn't realize she actually like lived with the monkeys. Um, but they say so a lot of scientists are kind of doubtful about how true her story is and there's like a lot of talk about how memory works as a child and stuff like that so um, it's hard to verify everything but there is this uh, Colombian professor named Carlos Conde who did a test using her reactions to photos of her adopted family and photos of capuchin monkeys Mm. and I guess it like proved or it indicated that she was telling the truth how old was she? Uh, she was like just under five when she was abducted so she was like 10 ish when she came back to society and again she had lost all memory of language but now she can speak Um, and they also did x-rays of her leg bones and they show harris lines which are common in people who suffered severe malnutrition as a young child so while there could have been other causes for that they think that that actually is kind of in line with the idea that when she was living with the monkey she would have had a more limited diet so again it's hard to prove anything one way or the other but it does seem like at least parts of her story are likely true well also and she's a book out which i'm so fascinated like i really want to read it oh me too it's also just like if you're a child abandoned in the jungle i feel like you would try like your instinct would be to find a group that you feel safe in, right? Or feel safe with. So Again, yeah, monkeys or some of these stories about like dogs and stuff make more sense to me than mm-hmm. I'm gonna go live with the yeah, ostrich. The ostrich is a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> of all the animals you could have chosen. But there's like all these crazy stories about like goats and stuff that like I'm like, wait, what? Goats? But I couldn't find anything that seemed legit enough to talk about with goats. Well monkeys I guess but, just um, because there's they're in groups, right? So it's like, and same with dogs, like it's yeah. a pack. Familial so it's like there's safety and, yeah. in numbers. And, you know, if you're part of a group, you're probably going to be less vulnerable to attack. So even if they didn't like raise her, you know. And and this one, so this is kind of like a different kind of story. So there's this guy, um, Ivan Mishakov, who was born in 1992. And he lived with wolves between the ages of four and six. Wow. Or, or, or dogs. It might have been a feral dog pack. It 
yeah. the stories are a little bit different. But he ran away from home. So I guess his mom was like an al- had an alcoholic and abusive boyfriend. And he basically like brought food to this pack of dogs and like earned their trust. And they would protect him in return. Mm-hmm. Um, and they even said he eventually became sort of the pack leader. Oh my god. He like became and the every alpha. every <laughs> time he was taken in by the police three times. And three times the pack helped him escape. What? How? Yeah. I don't, I don't know the whole story, okay. I guess, but, but like, but again, I mean, it does seem like there's this like true bond, bond yeah. between them. Oh my God, um, that's amazing. And he was able to pick up language fairly rapidly again. And I sort of get the sense that, yes, it was a feral dog pack, but he wasn't like in the middle of a jungle somewhere. But um, yeah, and he was living in Moscow, so they like kept him warm in the winter. Oh my goodness. And, you know, like according to him, I guess. Human society isn't better than living in a dog pack. But. I believe that. <laughs> I just wonder what's going on from, like, the animal perspective. Like, when they see this human that they have this instinct to be afraid of and then somehow overcome that and and realize that this human is vulnerable and we need to protect that. Like, where does that maternal protecting instinct come into play? Well, it's funny because they actually say adoption is fairly common in the wild, but for your own species, I'm trying to remember the name that they have. Like, it's really abnormal for an animal to, like, adopt a different animal. And you've heard some stories about, like, you know, like that gorilla who was in captivity who, like, had a bunch of pet kittens and stuff. Oh, yeah. So it's not, like, completely unheard of, but um, it's actually relatively common to like bring in a child that's not yours but in the same species especially if you've lost a child or something like that I believe that there's also stories about like I I probably saw it on Facebook or something this video of this um mother kitten or this mother cat who just had a um litter of kittens and she had just given birth and she like wandered outside and she came across a duckling oh And they said that, like, under any other circumstances, she would have killed the duckling. But because she had just given birth to this litter of kittens, her um, mothering instincts or her mothering hormones were, like, flooding her body. So she took the duckling home and she, like, raised this duckling along with her kittens. And, of course, they showed a video and it was, like, two years later, this grown duck and this cat are, like, best friends. I've seen also another, like, video on Facebook of this cat that was, like, a rescue cat. And very close to death, and like these two huskies, this lady had like helped nurse him back Aww. to health, and he now acts like a dog. Like he likes to be on the leash, and he likes to <laughs> like do all the stuff that cats normally don't like to do, and he thinks he's best friends with these huskies. But um, another kind of weird adoption of animals, and this is in the wild. Um, there's there's a pod of sperm whales that took care of a deformed bottlenose dolphin, which is really not Aww. something you would normally see. Um, because aren't sperm whales pretty aggressive? Yeah, and they're yeah they're not the most friendly animal, and it's not, not the friendliest like, animal in the yeah. ocean. Yeah, but they say adoption often yeah, kind of what you're saying. Uh, you have increased levels of oxytocin or something, and your social bonding is higher than normal if you've recently had kids and stuff. So, so it's not like completely unheard of, and it is great in a lot of these cases that animals have helped yeah. these kids survive. Um, and I do think. Based on, again, I'm not sharing all the stories I read. I read a ton of random stuff. But um, some of it, too, seems like kids who just can pick up enough clues from watching what the animals are doing. So it's not that the animals are really, like, 
hey, come join our herd, as much as it's like, oh, I saw that the group of goats dug up, or the boar dug up this kind of root and ate it, so I'm going to try to eat that same So I can too. It's mimicry almost. It's like learning from them. But still, not being attacked by them or like accepting them in general is kind of impressive also. Oh, agreed. (gasps) That's so cool. But it is hard to adjust back to society, especially if it was during your critical years. Yeah, because like five years old and under, that's like some of your most formative years, right? Yeah. And when you acquire language. Yeah. And language obviously is hard, but it was also just interesting to hear some of the stories of like what they would do because they had, you know, like how they would walk on all fours or how they Mm -hmm. would just like sort of their instinct based on how they learned to socialize essentially from the animals. It was, I mean, it was like, like I said, kind of sad, but also kind of fascinating. And some stories were better than others, but none were really great stories. Um, But I am interested to read this book or look more into this book about the girl with no name. Me too. Well, speaking of next books, should we dis- should we discuss what we're going to read next? Yes, let's do it. Okay. Well, actually, <laughs> we still what? need to think of a fan name. Oh, oh wait, no, I wrote down. Oh, I didn't write down anything good though. I'm just looking at no. Okay. <laughs> Did you come up um, with any anything good? Okay, so I still I still like the idea of the mad, right? But you were like that makes them sound angry. Mm-hmm. So then I was like the mad mint. No, that still sounds <laughs> That's the a same show. way. Then I was like the yeah. Then I was like, on this whole thing with like the brave maiden. And I was like oh. that's not very accepting of male fans, but True. we're both girls, so brave maiden. Then I had the mischief makers, but that doesn't really make sense. I don't really have any I love to be honest. The faithful. That's what I wrote down. I wrote down the faithful. What do they call him? The master of mischief. Mischief. Mm-hmm. Mas- we could be masters of mischief. I don't really like that though. I don't know. Yeah, I was trying to think of, like, Mischief Maker was, like, sort of we're in line with the Master Mischief, but we're not the Goblin King ourselves. I don't know. That's true. We're kind of, like, along for the ride. Or I still like the idea of the elf touched or whatever, except that it sounds weird. <laughs> but, like, I wish there was another phrase for the people who, like, had the gifts of yeah the Goblin. Because the faithful were, like, the opposite. They were, like, people who didn't have gifts, which I guess is us, too. Yeah. And some of them had gifts, right? Although not, they weren't dare. Not to the same Earl extent. Koenig's they weren't like own. his own. Yeah. Yeah. And if I could say his name easier, I would say something with his name, but I can't. Or his title. Oh, what if we just were the Elf King's own? I, I kind of like it. First thought you were going to say, what if we were Wolf King's own? And then I was like, let's get Wolf in another name. The Elf no. King's own. I kind of like that. The only other thing I could think of was... um. So the faithful, and then I was trying to come up with a music term, and I was like, uh, I don't know. We could be accompanists, because that's like, I don't know. Joseph and Mm -hmm. Liza always talk about how they accompany each other. But I actually like the Elf King's own. I like it too. Let's go with that. Okay. Yay! Yay! We did it! Okay. And then was there a favorite scene you had in this this half of the book? Oh, that's hard. I actually, like, I was just very curious to see the view from the monastery, because they described it as so beautiful, but it wasn't like as an overall scene necessarily something I'd want to do. I mean, I think it would be something where the world is, you know, kind of like what you were saying, that inversion of the world or the, you know, something with a little bit more magic in it. Or her talking to her sister or something with the mirror room. Yeah. Where, like, all the reflections, because that could be really cool, but then seeing one reflection that talks back or whatever. I liked that. I liked when she was looking at the lake and it was a mirror. Yeah, that was cool. 
Okay, so we this is just a duology, but we're already ready to rate it. What did you Oh, that's right. think of this book? Wait, first, okay. what are we rating it out of? You know how we always pick a random thing related to the book? I was thinking we should rate it out of how many goblin queens. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like it. I, the, I was trying to think of ones too, and I was like, how many sonatas? How many changelings? But I like goblin queens because there, <laughs> there, there were many of them. But I guess we should pick like a number, like a maximum number, so we have a reference point. Okay. Ten? Okay, out of ten. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> ten Goblin Queens. That seems like a lot. I bet there are more. I mean, how many? I wish I counted how many dresses we saw in the dress oh, cellar. That's right. <laughs> or the dress shop or whatever. Would have given us a clue. <laughs> okay, so how okay. many Goblin Queens out of ten <laughs> would you give this series? Where more oh. Goblin Queens is better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to give it five. Okay, I'm going to give it a six. Okay. Because I enjoyed reading it, but there were certain parts where I was just like, oh, I want more, and then I didn't get more, and then I was disappointed, and then there were some parts where I was confused. Mm-hmm. Um, so all in all, the experience of reading it, I would say, is, is a five. But that sounds harsh, but I, I've never given it a book higher than an eight, I think. So yeah, let's put that in perspective. And we read some really great books. And this isn't really how you should rate things, but this is how, like on Goodreads, if I write, rate something a three, it's not that it's like medium out of five. It's that in my mind, that's, I would recommend it, but only to people who really like a genre already. Like it wouldn't be an, like if I, if someone was like, I want to get into YA fiction, I probably wouldn't suggest this as like their first book. For a, yeah. You know? And, but if someone was like, I really like gothic romances, I'd be like, hey, have you read Shadow Song? Yes, exactly. And, like, I'm super stingy with my st- with my Goblin Queens. Because I'm the same way. Like, I can count maybe on one hand the number of books I've given five Goodread stars to. Yeah. yeah. And three is, like, I enjoyed it, but it didn't, like, blow me out of the water. So let's see how many Goblin Queens this next series has. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. for our next series, we are going to read... The Illuminae Files. Yay. Yay. And these... And go ahead. The third one just came out recently, right? Yeah. Third I'm final one. I'm really, really disappointed because the third one just came out. It's a trilogy. And the authors... So this series was co-authored, which I think is kind of interesting. So um, the authors are Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. And Jay Kristoff wrote The Nevernight Chronicles, which is on our list of books to read. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and I'm so disappointed because both of them are coming to Chicago tomorrow. And I'm oh. out of town. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. I don't even think they're coming to Atlanta. I did a check a they're little not. bit ago, and I didn't see Atlanta on the list. I'm like, Atlanta's a big city, but it, I feel like it's not a very big book city. I feel like so many of the tours I've looked up, no one's coming here. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame that you don't get more authors there. We get a ton in Chicago. It's just like, I have the worst luck with timing. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, I do this even with, like, concerts or musicians I want to see or other stuff. I just, like, forget to think about looking it up sometimes. So unless it's, like, I happen to see a sign or I happen to see an email or we're talking about, oh, we should do this, and I Google it and it happens to work out. Like, I just forget to make plans around that kind of stuff sometimes. Well, I've been trying to follow all the authors to make sure we don't miss any book signings. And, of course, like, the one that's in Chicago I can't go to. (laughs) So I'm sorry to miss you guys, but... 
I'm really excited to read this next series. I'm excited too. I've heard good things and I've heard it's like kind of an interesting way to tell a story. Like it's um, a bunch of different modes of communication or something is part of this. Yeah. It's told through like um, a series of documents. Mm -hmm. So it's like emails and military files and medical reports and interviews. So it's, I think the format is going to be very different from anything else we've read, which I'm excited about. Yeah. I hope I can follow it and I don't get lost. Me too. And I just (laughs) got it on Kindle and I'm like, this probably wasn't the best format. (laughs) But okay, I will read the back of the book for you guys. Well, this is the description on Goodreads. Okay, Illuminae um, is the first book. This morning, Katie thought breaking up with Ezra was the hardest thing she'd have to do. This afternoon, her planet was invaded. The year is... <laughs> yeah, that put things, puts things in perspective. I hate it when that happens right after a breakup. <laughs> oh, me too. God. You just need ice cream and like lay in your bed and watch The Bachelor. Exactly. Um, the year is 2,575 and two rival megacorporations are at war over a planet that's little more than an ice-covered speck at the edge of the universe. Too bad nobody thought to warn the people living on it. With enemy fire raining down on them, Katie and Ezra, who are barely even talking to each other, are forced to fight their way onto an evacuating fleet with an enemy warship in hot pursuit. But their problems are just getting started. A deadly plague has broken out and is mutating with terrifying results. Another plague! Another yes. plague! There's always a plague. There was even a plague in this last book. I know. Not super prevalent, but yeah. It's everywhere. <laughs> um, the fleet's AI, which should be protecting them, may actually be their enemy, and nobody in charge will say what's really going on. As Katie hacks into a tangled web of data to find the truth, it's clear only one person can help her bring it all to light. The ex-boyfriend she swore she'd never speak to again. <laughs> Oh, it sounds like fun. I'm excited. It sounds way different than this, especially. I like how we kind of go from, like, something that feels, like, old to something that's, like, in the future. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean? It was, like, we went from... I like, I like jumping worlds dramatically. I, I agree. It, it was, like, old-fashioned, and now it's very, very futuristic. Yeah. It's a space opera. Ooh. Maybe James will read it. <laughs> so... It was really hard to find a midpoint because it's just a series of emails and like (laughs) strange documents. So the best I could do, it's a little bit less than halfway, but it seems like the best place to stop. So it's this, it's not even a chapter. It's just this black square and on it, it says countdown to Lincoln interception of Alexander fleet, zero hours, zero minutes. And I was like, that seems like something's about to go down, so let's stop there. It's like 48%. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. We'll read the, up to there. Ooh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Maybe I was I was like, we should do our podcast next time through a series of documents, but I didn't really think that through. <laughs> It'll just be work. a series of frantic text exchanges between <laughs> you and me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it would be funny to see us prep for the podcast. Like, the articles we research, our notes, yeah. our texts back and forth. <laughs> There's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, I'm excited. Me too. And you have to tell me a joke this week. Okay, so James is embracing the idea of one day being a dad and trying to get dad jokes Ooh, figured out. Me too. So, I can't wait to be a dad. <laughs> I know. I think I should be the dad in our relationship because I think I'm better at them. But this is, this is his. He gave me this earlier today and said I had to use it. Okay. 
I said to my doctor, I've got a problem with the hearing in one of my ears. He said, are you sure? I said, yes, I'm definite. <laughs> I get it. I'm deaf in it. Yep. That's like dad well, joke funny. right there. <laughs> I know. He he thinks he broke his foot today and he texted me this while I was at work and I'm like I said to my I was like wait what's yeah you're something wrong with you like it took me a minute to even realize it was a dad joke <laughs> I was like why didn't you mention your foot when you were talking to the doctor uh, oh. okay <laughs> well I hope James's foot is but better yeah. <laughs> he's he's laughing now oh, so good. it's all good yeah. oh man anything Alrighty. else oh we're done with the series it's so, oh. It seems weird that it was only two books and it's over. Okay, I need some more short stories, <gasps> S.J. Jones, if you listen to this. Um, I'm very intrigued by what happened with all of our characters. Me too. I, I like seriously fall into depression whenever I finish a series. It takes me a while to snap out of it. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's like good to talk about them, like get kind of excited for the next one, even though I take a little bit of a break to mourn properly. <laughs> it is. It's a mourning but period. It is. Oh. It's a breakup, really. Yeah. Um, so we'll just say thank you to everyone who's been listening for over a year now. We really, really love and appreciate your support. And if you want to learn more, you can visit us on Instagram or Facebook at MNK Talk YA. We post lots of pictures of our puppies. Mm-hmm. And you can also email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. And we love to get messages from you guys, and we respond to every single one. So just email us anything you want. Dad jokes, book recommendations. We love to hear it. Yeah. What you think of feral children. Whatever you want, really. A fan name? Help us out with a fan name. I I need a lot of help. I think Marissa's actually come up with all of them because I don't do them well. (laughs) 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 All right. (sighs) Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.